Church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word, the Bible, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. I'm going to read verse 11 through 22, and then we're going to focus our attention today on verses 11 through 18. But it is one whole passage, and so I want to read all of it for us today, verse 11 through 22, and then we'll focus our attention on verse 11 through 18. The title of our message is From Divided to Reconciled. From Divided to Reconciled. So you'll follow along in your copy as I read, beginning in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. This is the Word of God. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. And as I said a moment ago, we will focus our attention on verses 11 through 18 today. And then um, part two uh, we will be verse, uh, not today, but another day, will be verses 19 through 22. The other day, my brother-in-law uh, and I were talking about a major league baseball team and a specific player on that team, and uh, we were looking up some information about him on the internet, and uh, my brother-in-law found one article, and it said that this player was known for three things, being a vegan, promoting world peace, and a mustache, having a good mustache. Now, that is quite the combination right there, (laughs) things to be known for. Being a vegan, promoting world peace, and having a good mustache. And that's not at all what I was expecting to hear about this particular player, um, or really any baseball player for that matter. My initial response to my brother-in-law was, I thought we were talking about a baseball player, not a beauty pageant contestant. Now, obviously, I wasn't thinking about the mustache part, or not so obviously in the world that we live in today, um, but... I also wasn't thinking about the vegan part when I made that comment. I was thinking about the world peace part uh, when I said, I thought we were talking about a baseball player, not a beauty pageant contestant. World peace has become the stereotypical beauty pageant answer to what a contestant is promoting with her platform. I'm not throwing down on uh, on beauty pageant contestants, just stating the facts. That seems to be the go-to answer. Um, uh, what What you're trying to do, you are trying to promote world peace. And though many people roll their eyes at such an answer, and in one sense, rightfully so, the desire for peace reveals a real longing 
in our hearts. See, whether it's a girl trying to win over judges in a beauty contest or a baseball player trying to make a name for himself for something other than his baseball playing, um, or whether it's a, a mother breaking up the fight between her kids, or whether it's kids hiding from fighting parents, there is a longing in all of our hearts for peace. The word peace shows up in our passage today four times. I think it's a pretty important part of our passage, a pretty important word, four times. But instead of being an empty wish that is out of touch with reality, what we find here in this passage is a very real and lasting peace that has been purchased at a great cost and unites together very different people to one another and unites together very sinful people to a holy God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18 teaches us this, church, that through the cross, Jesus created a new people at peace with one another and with God. Through the cross, Jesus created a new people at peace with one another and with God. I want to give you a quick overview of chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, and then we'll focus in on verses 11 through 18. I'm going to divide verses 11 through 22, this passage of Ephesians, into three parts. Three parts. We're going to look at the first two parts today. So in part one, which is verse 11 through 12, we see some bad news. It's bad news that was true of us in the past before salvation in Christ. Part two is verses 13 through 18. And here we see the good news stated very clearly and succinctly in verse 13. And then a more detailed explanation given in verses 14 through 18. And then when we get to part three, not today, uh, but when we get to part three, verses 19 through 22, we'll see really the result of this good news of verse 13. It stands in complete contrast to the bad news of verses 11 and 12. So today we're going to look at those first two parts. Now, Notice with me in this passage, if you're a, a underline words or circle words, you could get your pencil or pen out and, and highlight a few of these words. I just want you to notice the amount of repetition of words in this passage. And you could take just this group of words and kind of figure out just on these words alone what this passage is all about. I already said the word peace is in there four times. The word or phrase far off and near, those are in there two times each. The word hostility is in this passage twice. The word one, O-N-E, the number one, is in here four times. The word both is in here three times. The word together is in here two times. And then there are three references to the crucifixion of Jesus. You'll notice these phrases, by the blood of Christ in his flesh, and through the cross. And so we just put those words together. I'm just going to say those words in a particular order, and you can get the gist of this passage. Far off, hostility, near, peace, together, both, one, and three times it mentions the cross of Christ. Through the cross, God is creating a new people, who are together, united to one another and to God. Plus, in this passage, in verse 11 through 22, we have two references to the Trinity. We see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all together in two different verses in this passage. So, church, this is not an inconsequential, inconsequential passage of God's Word. 
This is, this is a huge passage. This is a weighty passage. There's a lot here. It's a passage of extreme importance for us in understanding what God was doing by crushing His Son under His wrath on the cross. If we want to understand the crucifixion of Jesus better, this is one of the passages that we must know well. This passage is of extreme importance in understanding the essential nature of the church in God's eternal plan. We want to learn about the church, the body of Christ. This is a passage that we must go to. And this passage is of extreme importance for a world longing for true and lasting peace. We want to know what true peace is, where true peace comes from. This is a passage that we must give our attention to. And so let's give our undivided attention to God's Word. I want to share with you two main truths from verses 11 through 18 today. The first comes from that per- first part, verses 11 through 12, and it's this. We were once people marked by hostile division and hopeless separation. We were once people marked, characterized, a distinguishing feature of us, however you want to say that, was hostile division and hopeless separation. We start with the bad news. And the bad news is that we were once a people marked by nothing less than hostile division and hopeless separation. Look look at verse 11. Therefore, remember, Paul says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Here Paul reminds the believers of the hostile division that characterized them before they were saved. Now to understand verse 11, we need to know a little bit of background information. Paul is here talking about the division between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews were the people who were physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Gentiles were everyone else. They were the nations, the Greek word here, ethne. They were the, they were the peoples of the world. Everyone who was not a, a Jew was a Gentile. So we're splitting the entire human population into two groups, Jews and Gentiles. God had chosen the Jews to represent Him in the world. And they were to represent Him to the world by living differently from the world around them through obeying the law that God had given to them. And one of the things God's law told them to do was to practice circumcision. If you don't know what that means, I'll put it to you this way. Circumcision was a physical mark that was placed on males. It was a marking, as Paul says, made in the flesh by hands. It was a physical mark. And this physical mark was one of the things that set apart the Israelites from all the other nations who, again, were called the Gentiles. Now, what was God's intention in this? His intention was for the Jews to look different from the world around them so that they would then attract the world to God, to become worshipers of the one true God. As they followed the law of God, they were to be shining a light the light of God and His Word to the nations around them so that everyone would worship the one true God. But instead, the differences between the Jews and the Gentiles became a source of pride for the Jews, and therefore division arose between the Jews and the Gentiles. You see, instead of living out the commands of God so that the Gentiles would see God and know God and love God and come to worship God, the Jews look down on the Gentiles as outsiders. And Paul is drawing attention to that 
past division by reminding them, these Christians, of their previous name-calling. This is the way that he points to this hostile division was by pointing out their name-calling. Paul is saying, remember the division that used to exist between Jew and Gentile? He's talking to believers here in the, in the church in Ephesus. He says, remember how you used to call each other names? Anybody ever called somebody a name before? Not a very nice name. Probably all of us are guilty of it, that at some point. Um, my children, they, they don't know a lot of bad names to call people, but it's just a, a, a evidence of the sin that is in the human heart from birth. They make up names to call one another that make no sense, but it's the way that they say it and the expression on their face, they're calling one another a bad name. They're not even, they're not even real words, uh, but, but we, we name call. There's division uh, among us. And so he says, the Jews call the Gentiles the uncircumcision and the Gentiles uh, the, the, the circumcision. And so uh, called the Jews the circumcision. So maybe it sounded like this. Oh, look, there goes one of those good-for-nothing, uncircumcised Gentiles. Oh, you think you're so much better than me, you stuck-up, circumcised Jew? Right? That, so that's what Paul, he's getting at this division. They were name-calling one another. It'd be sort of like the division that college football creates among us for some people. For instance, we'll just take the Tigers and the Gamecocks. We might hear something like this during the football season. Oh, look. Oh, look, there goes one of those little chickens. Are you talking to me, you little kitty cat? And then the chickens and the kitty cat can join together and say, well, at least we're not one of those little puppy dogs from across the river. Well, the name calling signifies division. The name-calling signifies division, but the division between Jew and Gentile was far more serious. They truly hated one another. Their culture was different. Their clothing was different. Their food was different. Their government was different. Their worship was different. Their entire worldview, the way they interpreted the world around them, was different. There was hostility between these two groups, as verse 14 indicates. Hatred, enmity. Paul, talking to the Gentile believers in Ephesus, says, remember your hostile division. But he also wants them to remember their hopeless separation. He digs in the dagger of bad news a little deeper into their memory. And really, this is the, the kind of main point of verse 11 through 12. It's almost like verse 11 was just kind of an aside, but he really is getting to verse 12 where he wants them to remember their hopeless separation. He wants them to remember that in their division from the Jews, these Gentiles were also separated from God. Paul gives five descriptions of their separation in verse 13. I mean, he is just laying it on thick. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth, or you could say citizenship of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Notice these five statements that were true of the Gentiles. First, they were separated from Christ. See, the Jews have the promise of the Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. They're the same word, just in two different languages. This was the coming one. This was the promised deliverer. He was the coming king who would conquer enemies and save his people and usher in a kingdom of peace and prosperity. We could say that the Gentiles were separated from the king of salvation, Christ the Messiah. Second, they were alienated from the commonwealth or citizenship of Israel. 
Remember, the nation of Israel was God's chosen people who enjoyed a very special relationship with the God of heaven and the God of earth. God had revealed himself in many and special ways to Israel. He had provided special protection to Israel throughout their history. And the Gentiles were alienated from that citizenship. They were outsiders. They weren't able to enjoy all the God-given privileges that came with being an Israelite. And so we could say that the Gentiles were not only separated from the Savior King, they were also separated from the kingdom of salvation. They, were, they weren't citizens of that kingdom. Third, we see that they were strangers to the covenants of promise. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Now, you see, the best part about being a Jew, whether they realized it or not, was the promises that God had made. That was the best part about being a Jew. The promises that God had made. These covenants of promise trace back all the way to God's covenant with Abraham, which is a promise of land and offspring and protection. Then there was the covenant with King David. And that was a, that was a covenant, that was a promise of a forever king who would reign on a forever throne. And then you had the new covenant prophesied in Jeremiah where God promised to go inside of them and transform their hearts and forgive them of their sin forever and ever. The Gentiles didn't have those amazing covenants of promise. And so we could say that the Gentiles were separated from the promises of salvation. Fourth, they had no hope. They had no hope. Now, I read where one person defined biblical hope this way, and I'm going to take his definition and paraphrase it just a little bit. But, but he said that hope is an eager expectation for the future that flowed from trust in the outworking of God's plan. That's a great definition of biblical hope. A, a, an eager expectation for the future. In other words, not living in dread or fear of the future, but an eager expectation of the future that flows from the trust in the outworking of God's plan. Well, let's think about it in a negative sense. If you are separated from the king of salvation, the kingdom of salvation, the promises of salvation, then you really don't have any hope. You really don't have any hope. You have nothing to hope for. There is no finish line coming that makes the race worth running. There is no prize awaiting you that makes the present pain of living in a fallen world bearable. A life without hope, namely eternal hope, is a miserable life. And that was the life of the Gentiles. We could say that the Gentiles were separated from the hope of salvation. And then fifth, to top it all off, Paul says that they were without God in this world. They were without God in this world. Oh, the, the Gentiles were worshipers, to be sure. And they worshiped many gods, but they didn't worship the one true God. They were without the one true God. They were without the God before whom they would stand one day to receive eternal judgment. They were without the God who had a plan of salvation and the power to make it happen and the love to make it happen. They were without that God. We could say that the Gentiles were separated from the God of salvation. Now, you might be sitting there at best feeling sorry for the Gentiles or at worst saying, who cares? What does this have to do with me? Well, friend, you can replace the word Gentiles with I or we. See, we are the Gentiles. Apart from God's divine intervention, we experience hostile division and hopeless separation. Apart from God's gracious intervention, we are separated from the king of salvation. We are separated from the kingdom of salvation. We are separated from the promises of salvation. We are separated from the hope of salvation. And we are separated from the God 
of salvation. If you're a Christian today, remember who you once were. And if you're not a Christian today, friend, wake up and see who you are now. Marked by hostile division and hopeless separation. But praise God, even at the verb tense of this passage, we can see that we don't have to stay in that condition of hostility and hopelessness. Praise God that Paul says, remember that at one time you were these things. Praise God, going on to verse 13, Paul says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Church, we once were a people marked by hostile division and hopeless separation, but praise God, truth number two is this, in Christ, we are now a people united by a costly reconciliation. We now are a people united by costly reconciliation. Paul says, but now you who once were far off have been brought near. Friends, those are gospel words. Those are good news words. Just like the gospel words of chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. But God made us alive together with Christ. Remember, those were a breath of life and a sea of death. So these words, but now you have been brought near, are a breath of peace in a sea of hostility. As verses 11 through 12 revealed, we need peace. We need peace between us and humans, right? A, a horizontal peace, and we need a vertical peace, a peace between us and God. And friend, Jesus is that peace. Verse 13 gives an overview of how Jesus is our peace, and then verses 14 through 18 spell that out in more detail. Look at the overview in verse 13. This overview is twofold. We can have the peace we need through union with Jesus and through the cross of Christ. We can have the peace we need through union with Jesus and through the cross of Jesus. First, notice that Paul says we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There at the end of verse 13. Friend, when Jesus died on the cross, his death, his blood, which paid the price for our sin and cleanses us from our sin, that blood provided the peace that we desperately need. But it's not automatic. You see, just because Jesus died on the cross and just because he died for all the peoples of the world doesn't mean that all people are given the peace that they need. Notice that qualifying phrase in the beginning of verse 13. In Christ. In Christ, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, it's only those who are in Christ who are brought near by the blood of the cross. It's only those who have been joined to Christ by God's grace through faith in Jesus who have the, have the peace that they desperately need. And we're going to dive in into the details of the how we who are far off have been brought near to God and to his people in verses 14 to 18, but Please know all the good news of verse 14 through 18 is only good news for those who are in Christ. But how is it? How is it that we who are brought near to God and his people? Let's look at the glorious detail of this good news of being brought near by the blood of the cross in verses 14 through 18. Paul answers this question of how it is that we're brought near by the blood of the cross in, in two main ways. First, he says that Jesus became peace through his death on the cross. How is it that we were brought near through, through the crucifixion of Jesus? First, Jesus became peace through his death on the cross. Verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace. 
who has made us both one. Here he's talking about specifically the Jews and Gentiles. He has made us, Jew and Gentile, both one. And he did so by becoming our peace. Jesus, Jesus the Christ, is the peace we need. Jesus doesn't merely point us in the direction of peace. Jesus doesn't merely give us instructions for how to achieve peace on our own. He doesn't merely set an example of peace that hopefully we'll follow and gain the peace that we need. He himself is our peace. Now, how is that? Well, it's through his death, and his death brought us peace in two ways. First, notice that the death of Jesus destroyed the hostility, the hatred between people. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Remember I said that phrase, in his flesh, is referring to his death. Think about his, his body on the cross, in his flesh. So when Jesus died, he was destroying what Paul says was a dividing wall of hostility. Well, what was this dividing wall? Look at verse 15. He destroyed the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. To put it very simply, the dividing wall was the Jewish law which ended up becoming a separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, if you're thinking biblically and you got your mind kind of racing through the pages of Scripture, that phrase that he came to abolish the law may, thank you, may, may make you think, wait a second, I thought, I thought Jesus said he came to do the opposite. The Sermon on the Mount says, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Well, so is the Bible contradicting itself? Is Jesus contradicting himself? Not at all. The Sermon on the Mount is focused on God's standard of holiness. Jesus did not come to abolish God's standard of holiness, but to fulfill it. He kept the law where we could not, so that in that sense, he fulfilled the law rather than abolishing the law. Plus, Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial part of the law. He, he became the once and for all sacrifice for sin. But on the other hand, when Jesus came, he did away with the ceremonial parts of the law, such as food regulations. You read Leviticus, you see a bunch of food regulations, clothing regulations, cleanliness regulations, and even the requirement for circumcision. And these are the things that visibly divided the Jews and the Gentiles. So that is one sense in which Jesus abolished the law. Those things were no longer necessary. Do you want to see that abolishing take place? Go read Acts chapter 10. It's a wonderful passage, and you'll see that ceremonial law going to the wayside. But we can also go back to the moral law for just a moment and say that even though Jesus fulfilled the moral law in his sinlessness by upholding all that is good and right and true, he abolished the burden of the moral law. All the do's and the don'ts, right? All the, we need to live this way so that God will be pleased with us that is a burden upon sinners because we can never live up to God's standard of perfection. And so in his death, Jesus lifted, removed the burden of the moral law, which laid heavy upon people who were trying to earn access to God through obedience to that law, which is impossible. So in abolishing the ceremonial law, Jesus became peace between Jew and Gentile. That's that 
horizontal um, peace. And then by abolishing the burden of the law, which exposed our enslavement to sin, Jesus became peace between God and man, the vertical peace that we need. That's exactly what Paul says in the rest of verse 15 and into verse 16. He says that he might, so here's the reason that he came, died to break down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, horizontal peace, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, vertical peace. And here, when he says, thereby killing the hostility, verse 16, he's referring to the hostility between people and God due to our failure to obey the law perfectly, which we call sin or transgression. I said a moment ago that Jesus' death brought us peace in two ways. First, the death of Jesus destroyed the hostility between people, Jew and Gentile. And verse 16 tells us that the death of Jesus killed the hostility between people and God. See, with Jesus on the cross, he was doing a work of destruction and killing. He was destroying the hostility between Jew and Gentile, between people and people. He was killing the hostility between us and God. Now, I know this is a lot to take in. I feel that too. I feel my mind overloaded in this passage. But that's kind of the point. Friend, Jesus did a lot through his death on the cross. That's why the death of Jesus is at the very heart of the gospel of Jesus. It's at the very heart of what it means to be Christian. The death of Christ. The blood of Jesus. It's not optional. It's not optional at all. Friend, to take the blood out of the good news is to take the good out of the news. That's why we talk about the blood of Christ and sing about the blood of Christ. And tell people about the blood of Christ. When Jesus died, his blood was destroying hostile division and hopeless separation. He destroyed hostile division between Jew and Gentile. And notice, he didn't merely make them friends, kind of acquaintances, where they wouldn't really hate each other anymore and call each other names. He, he, he did more than that. He united them into one new man. It's not that the Jews became Gentiles or the Gentiles became Jews. It's that Jew and Gentile were both completely transformed into one new man, into one body, the text says. And this one new man, this body is the church. It is the church and this unity purchased by Jesus on the cross, this blood-bought peace between fellow believers serves as the foundation for our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. You see, at the end of chapter 3, Paul is going to pray specifically that the church would know true love. And then he is going to call the church to put that love and unity into practice when he gives this command in chapter 4 to live with, quote, humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Friend, why should we be eager to maintain unity in the body of Christ? It's because Jesus poured out his blood on the cross to make us one. 
Brothers and sisters, anything we say or do that sows seeds of division in the body of Christ is a word or an action that is in direct opposition to the precious blood of Jesus. We are acting as nothing less than enemies of the cross of Christ when we tear down a fellow believer with our words or spread lies about a fellow believer or withhold forgiveness from a fellow believer or say things out of selfish anger to a fellow believer, all of which, those things that I just mentioned, those specific things, Paul mentions each of those in chapter 4. The cross is the foundation of our unity. And so if we have been brought near by the blood of Christ, we will be eager then to maintain the unity purchased by Jesus. But also notice this part about being reconciled to God. You see, when Jesus died, he not only destroyed the Hostile division, he destroyed the hopeless separation between people and God. And notice that it's both the Jew and the Gentile who have been reconciled to God. That really helps us in our understanding about Jews and Gentiles. It's, the text says, and might reconcile us both to God. You see, sometimes we may have this thinking that the Jews are just automatically in to God's family by nature, by virtue of being Jewish. But that's not true. God had to reconcile both Gentiles and Jews to himself. Even though the Jews had the promise of the Messiah and were citizens of Israel and had the covenants of promise and had the hope of a coming salvation and worshiped the one true God, remember that list back in verse 12, even though they were near, they were not in. It's kind of like a a long line of people waiting to get into a concert that's first come, first served. You don't have a ticket. you got to just be there in line, and there's a certain number of seats. It's first come, first serve. Now, it's definitely better to be near the door rather than far away from the door, to be towards the front of the line than to be at the very back of the line. But whether you are near or whether you are far, as long as you're still in line on the outside, you are excluded from all of the excitement on the inside. Paul addresses this in much more detail in the book of Romans. I would encourage you to read this week, especially chapters 1 through 3. The point here is that everyone, both Jew and Gentile, needed the death of Jesus, needs the death of Jesus to reconcile them, to reconcile us to God. We all need Jesus. And praise God, Jesus became peace for all who would believe in him. And it cost him his life. Which leads us to the second final way we're brought near to God and his people. Remember back in verse 13, Paul says, you who once were far off have been brought near. Then he gives two main ways we are brought near through Jesus. First, Jesus became our peace through his death on the cross. That's verses 14 through 16. And then finally, verses 17 through 18 adds another way in which Jesus is the answer to our need for peace. Not only did Jesus become our peace, Jesus proclaimed peace. Jesus proclaimed peace through the message of the cross. Verse verse 14, Jesus became peace. Verse 17, Jesus proclaimed peace. He became our peace through his death on the cross, and he proclaimed peace through the message of the cross. Look at verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. A couple of things to consider. First, the message of peace was preached to those who were far off, and it was preached to those who were near. Were near. That is both Gentile and Jew. Further confirmation of what we just said with the line illustration. Whether you were far off or whether you were near, you needed to be reconciled to God. Which means whether you were Jew or Gentile, you needed the message of peace, the good news of the gospel, preached to you. The only way a Gentile is going to be saved is through faith in Jesus, and the only way a Jew is going to be saved is through faith in Jesus. 
Jews don't automatically go to heaven by being Jew- Jewish, just like you or I don't automatically go to heaven just because we may have grown up in church hearing the gospel or grown up attending church services. Everyone needs to believe in Jesus' death on the cross as a sufficient sacrifice for their sin in order to be saved and rescued from their sin, which means everyone needs to hear the message of the cross. As Paul said in the book of Romans, for faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And thankfully, this message of the cross is good news of peace for everyone. It's good news of peace for all peoples. Everyone who believes in Jesus can be saved, Jew and Gentile alike, which means the message of the gospel is for everyone. But also consider, and maybe if you're reading carefully, you may kind of scratch your head for a moment. It says that Jesus preached this message of peace. Well, that seems to be a problem, right? Jesus first, didn't really preach to Gentiles while he was on the earth. He gave his ministry time to the Jews. That was his, part of his, his mission in being here. He came the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so he focused on preaching to the Jews. So how can Paul say that Jesus preached this peace to also those who were far off, also to the Gentiles? And then we can take it a step further, and he's writing to Not to Jews in Israel or even Gentiles living in Israel. He's writing to another country. He's writing to uh, to, to Gentile Christians in Ephesus. Well, guess what? Jesus never went to Ephesus. He stayed in Israel, right? His His whole life, he was there in Israel. So how in the world did can Paul say that Jesus preached this? Jesus definitely didn't visit Ephesus, so he definitely didn't preach to the Ephesian Gentiles who were far off. Or did he? In one sense, he did. You see, Jesus commanded his disciples to go into all the world and to preach the good news. And he gave them the Holy Spirit who would empower them to go and preach and would give them words to say as they went. These Ephesian believers may not have heard the message of the cross from the lips of Jesus, but they heard it from his disciples who were commissioned by Jesus and filled with the Spirit of Jesus and spoke with the authority of Jesus whenever they spoke the truth of Jesus. In other words, the Ephesian Gentiles might as well have heard it from Jesus. I want you to think about that in our own lives, brothers and sisters in Christ. Church, that means that whenever we speak the gospel of Jesus, we are the mouthpiece of Jesus himself. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that amazing? I don't want to make you tell someone about Jesus, to be the mouthpiece of Jesus. We get to be the mouthpiece of Christ, bringing a message of everlasting, blood-bought peace to a world that will live and die in hostile division and hopeless separation from God unless they hear the message of the cross and believe in Jesus. And when they do hear and believe, they and we and all who are in Christ together have equal access to God in one spirit. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Notice all three persons of the Godhead are mentioned there. Through Jesus, every person on the planet has access in one spirit to the Father, but only through Jesus. Why Jesus? Well, because only Jesus destroyed the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, and only Jesus killed the hostility between us and God by paying the price for our sin. Only Jesus poured out His blood on the cross so that we could be brought near. Friend, the reconciliation that every person desperately needs, the peace that the world longs for, was costly. And Jesus 
paid it all. As we meditate on the costly reconciliation which comes to us as a free gift, church, may we praise this triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit for giving us access to God in place of the separation from Him that we deserve. Access to hope, access to salvation, access to everlasting life. And as we celebrate the truth that through the cross, Jesus created a new people at peace with one another and with God. May we give ourselves to pursuing unity with one another and to proclaiming the good news of this gospel of peace to people who have yet to hear. Oh, praise God for the blood of Jesus. Praise God for the cross of Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank You. Thank You. Thank You for this incredible passage of Your Word. Father, may we heed what it says. May we believe in Jesus, the One who died for our sins. And may we live celebrating the unity that we share among the body of Christ celebrating the, the, the reconciliation that we enjoy with You, our Holy Heavenly Father. Father, thank You for the cross of Christ Jesus. Father, may we respond with genuine, genuine, overflowing in thankfulness overwhelmed with gratitude, praise of you. In Jesus' most precious holy name we pray. Amen.